1: Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson I'm the editor of Renew Economy. And joining me as usual, he's David Leach from ITK Services. David, uh, I trust you well. Last time I saw you, we were sort of um, hurtling down the road together in an Ionic 5 electric car. Um, I trust the rest of your trip went well.
2: Oh, well, it didn't uh, go any better than that uh, particular segment, Charles. Uh, that was a, a very pleasant cruise uh, on the outskirts of Canberra, and I was pleased to see that the Hyundai uh, lives up to uh, its promise of being able to take off of a street light uh, as fast as any 18-year-old, uh, like I am not, uh, would
1: absolutely wish. <laughs> Well, exactly. Yes, and look, I quite enjoyed this. Well, it sounds like an ad for our Hyundai actually, but um, I do want to make note that I did like to like the space of it. And then we, when we got back to Centennial Park later on, we um, to do a video. We uh, we boiled a kettle with their vehicle to load things. So just sort of some glimpse of the future and how electric vehicles um, may play into the um, energy market, even if the vehicle to load isn't strictly an off-grid application?
2: Well, Giles, there are two things about it. I've been thinking hard about this vehicle to the grid side of things, which is the sort of new emerging thing. And the the, the first thing is, you know, it won't work unless you can plug directly into the switchboard, right? That's the obvious thing. And and switchboards at the moment are not set up for that at all. So that's the first part. Uh, And uh, the second thing is, do you really, will the car manufacturers be happy having their batteries used to run a house for a week? uh and, and then you know someone running out and trying to drive uh to to Adelaide or somewhere
1: um well apparently so because they're allowing this to happen so um I guess I guess they are and look I quite enjoyed boarding a kettle um even if even if it was just for show just for the video but um, I can just imagine what other appliances you could use it for so power tools and things like that I just think it's going to be really quite a popular thing and look we will let to see um, how it pans out. Giles, then,
2: what what's all this boiler kettle stuff? I don't, I don't want to waste any more time. I thought you, Byron Bay, Bay folk, at the absolute minimum, would have been bringing out the espresso machine or something with some <laughs> gourmet beans. But anyhow, let's get on with the real world.
1: <laughs> Look... um It's been a week where we've had a world record in Australia and specifically the South Australian grid. First gigawatt scale grid to have negative demand happened on a couple of um, five minute periods on Sunday. Something we've kind of been expecting, but once again, it just shows the transformation about the grid and Because it invites the question about where is the storage, we thought we'd actually focus this week on uh, pumped hydro. And we would like to welcome Ben um, Balot from uh, ADCO, um, which is behind at least one major pumped hydro storage project in New South Wales. Ben, thanks for joining this podcast.
3: Thanks, Charles and David, for having me. And
1: look, um, apologies, I, I, I forgot to ask the, the correct pronunciation of your surname. Did, did I get it even remotely correct?
3: Oh, look, you were, you were pretty close. It's a silent T, like um, like Polo. But Polo, be...
1: okay. Is that Bolo oh, or Bolo? that's right. Polo, yeah. <laughs> okay. Then yeah. um, you at Co, um, ultimately a Canadian company, I, I understand, um, has a big pumped hydro project uh, just uh, near Bathurst. Why don't we just start with you explaining what it is and what you think makes it interesting.
3: Yeah, thanks very much for that, Giles. We we have um, invested in the Central West Pumped Hydro Project, which is a, a planned 325-megawatt, eight-hour storage project um, located about 20 kilometres out of Bathurst. Um, it's got about six and a half kilometres to the 330 kV Wellington to Mount Piper um, transmission line. Um, one of the things we really like about it is that, unlike a lot of pumped hydro, there's not a, a huge amount of drilling that we need to do. Um, so each project's obviously different, but you know when you really think about it, pumped hydro projects are probably 20 to 30% electrical, and then the rest is actually a civil construction. Um, mm. So we like this because it's above ground. We're building a um, the pump house is actually built above ground and then it's inundated around it so it's got some pretty cool features to it that make it a little bit different and of course that also helps from a capex perspective you know if you're not drilling under national parks like at snowy or some of the other projects that's kind of an expensive exercise and and fraught with danger this is um, a little bit easier we think.
2: Yeah. I, I, I won't, I, I'm just going to interrupt. Snowy's not drilling under the national park; it's drilling right through the middle of it. Uh, that doesn't. You know, just to be clear about that, but let's keep. <laughs> yeah, going.
3: I'll, I'll, I'll let you make that statement, David. <laughs> um, so,
1: so, look, um, what natural features are you taking advantage of? Because a pumped hydro project normally needs two reservoirs: one up high, one down below. You pump the water uphill, and then you let it fall down again, which actually um, generates the power as it sort of rushes through the turbines. Um, what have you got, and what do you need to build? Um,
3: so we have a um, roughly 400 metre head. Um, there's the, the undulation of the land as you head down over the, the, the back side of the, the Blue Mountains. Um, is actually quite good for this kind of thing because you get rolling hills. Um, at the top of, of one of them, we're going to put a turkey nest um, construction. Um, and at the bottom, there's a, um, what you'd call a valley, I guess, which is, which is not a particularly arable piece of land. Um, it doesn't have any farming use. It's been abandoned, more or less. It kind of had an old molybdenite mine on it many, many years ago. So mm-hmm. that will form the bottom reservoir, and we need to put a dam at the end of that, um, so about about a 35-metre dam wall at the end of that. Um, and so that the land is is, is quite good. Um, one of the things we have been working on quite hard, and, and we're actually, we think is pretty, pretty great, is that, we're looking to put an underground um, transmission cable to connect the powerhouse to the transmission line. Um, And part of the reason for that is because we know from from our experience and from others that local communities hate iron giants. They really don't want them across their land. Um, So we've found a solution that we think really works for that too.
2: Well, look, it doesn't go across anyone's land if it's in a national park. Sorry, back to you, Giles.
3: <laughs> yeah, but ours is not. Ours is not, David. Fortunately, ours is uh, on private land.
1: That's, um, so, look, that is just six kilometres of underground transmission line, but is there anything to note there about sort of the lessons for... Because, look, it's a huge debate. Uh, we've talked many a time on this programme, um, almost every, every programme, I think, just about the need for more transmission lines, et cetera, et cetera. Most of those are going to go above ground with these g- giant towers. That's obviously having some sort of issue um, um, with some landowners. So, underground, we're told in the past that it's actually too expensive, there's thermal heating issues. There's access issues and things like that. Well, um, what can you tell us about your six kilometer transmission line that might be applicable applicable to say a thousand kilometer transmission line?
3: Well, look, everyone's every you know situation's different, but we we sort of took the view that you know when you think about what it is that the community really gets upset about, they don't like the visual um, impact. Um, they are very concerned, quite rightly, about um, fire hazard that comes from overhead lines Um, so when you actually look at the life cycle of a of an underground cable um, you need less of a corridor to put an underground cable so typically you'd need sort of 10 to 20 meter um, easement to put an overhead cable but we don't need quite that much to go underground um, which means that the farmers lose less of their land which they obviously prefer Um, we also have worked out through the, you know, the environmental offsets that you require are quite expensive, the more land you take. Um, the, the efficiency of the, the underground cable is, um, is better because, you, you know, yes, there are some issues around um, the fact that it's buried, so maintenance can be a bit harder, but the operating costs are lower. Um, so the capex is a little bit higher, but um, we think that the offsets with, you know, bushfire risk, environmental offsets... Um, and actually, the engagement with the community is pretty critical, because I think one of the things that, that you know, people miss often is that the energy transition looks very different for people in the country than it does for those of us in the city. You know, we see the opportunity to reduce emissions, and we think it's a great thing, and of course it is. But for the people in the country, they see more iron giants, they see a lot of development, they see disruption to their life cycle. And, and, and
2: jobs, and jobs, by the and way, jobs. Ben, uh, yeah, and investment, course. you know, like billions and billions of dollars going into these renewable energy zones, uh, payment payments to uh, wind farmers and to solar f- farmers. Uh, so, you know, I mean, that's not uh, it's not a one way street.
3: No, no, absolutely, you, you're ab- you're absolutely right, David, and all those things are are necessary. But when you talk to people out there, um, you know, they there is a trade-off for them. They want to know that you're listening to them and that it's not going to disrupt their lifestyle the way um, that they might think it is. And so what we're trying to do um, is to show them the benefits of us working with them. Um, you know, they people often in these regions, because these ones, you know, where we're looking, are um, not, not long-term farming communities. These are lifestyle blocks and things like that. Um, what it requires is for us to be partners, not cowboys, And by showing that we can listen and do underground and and reflect some of their concerns, and the other big one obviously is water, um, you know, that that seems to be helpful. And and we want to be invested in for the long term. We're a long term holder. We're not a build and flick. That's not our model.
2: I'll come Um, back to that. I'll come back to that. Um, mm -hmm. Well, I was just looking uh, quickly. I can count, you know, your pump hydro, there's Lyle. Uh, which is Energy Australia's, which is, a, I would argue, a broadly similar project in terms of its size and even location. Uh, there's Oven Mountain, which is a Linters project, which is further north, but which is bigger, uh, has a steeper head and more duration. AGL's got Bell's Mountain. No matter what the technology is, AGL's always going to have one of them. Uh, uh, you know, uh, is there something that distinguishes your project from, from all the others in, in your view?
3: Well, in our view, we think that the, the civil construction is, is simpler. I mean, I, we can go through each of them individually, and, and you know, each of them has their own features, and ours will have disadvantages relative to others as well. So, you know, we're pretty we're pretty um, realistic that there isn't the perfect project out there. We have to build two reservoirs. Lake Lyle um, has an existing reservoir, and, and so they have to build an upper reservoir, which looks pretty challenging. Um, from a civil perspective, but you know, on the flip side, we have to build two reservoirs. We've got to build an upper and a lower reservoir. Um, Oven Mountain is in a national park. We're not in a national park. Um, if you look at Bell's Mountain, I think that's got some some issues with it as well. Shoalhaven has had some issues too. I think the reality is that there's space in the market for a number of projects. Um, you know, one of the things that that we like to to think about is that history favors the brave we want to get in there and we want to get moving and often first mover advantage is actually very valuable
2: i think it's fortune favors the brave to be honest ben uh uh history tends to favor the winners is the way i remember it (laughs) a very very good point david um uh now the next thing i wanted to point out is that a lot of these other projects have already got been done by an existing gen tailor and i'm still only on pumped hydro before we get into other technologies uh Uh, you know uh, what it's more than just you know how to build and I I get that but there's a lot more to the electricity business than just building the asset isn't there
3: oh absolutely I mean offtake is critical Um, and we all know that that that's been a major impediment um, to new entrants into the market the gen tailors have preferred their own portfolios which is what you'd do if you were being economically rational Um, but what we are seeing is, is a couple of things one is Um, you know, as as we've seen even over the the course of the last 24 hours, um, new entrants are coming into the retail space. Um, Shell buying the PowerShop book, and I know that's a whole debate in and of itself, Um, but we know that Ampol are looking, obviously. We can also see that um, BP are sitting out there. Um, Telstra is keen to be building a retail position. So I think there's a change going on in the retail segment as well. Um, And at the same time, the New South Wales government has recognised... The need for some government support to underwrite the longer term nature of investment like this. And the New South Wales roadmap, we think, is, you know, we think the New South Wales government's done a really good job of trying to provide some of that certainty. Um, We have to see the detail of the long term energy supply agreements, um, but it does look at, at first blush as though those could be very, very suitable.
2: I'll just ask one more question and hand back. And, and that's the obvious one is, you know, when you think about pumped hydro versus batteries, I mean, I'm, batteries are my favourite technology. Uh, I'll be honest, I've got a bias towards them, but I, I'm always interested to hear where I'm wrong. What do you want to tell me ab- ab- about... I, I am interested, you know, that's just an analyst. You get you know you get things wrong. You you, you get biases and you tend to fall, stick with them for far too long, even when there's evidence in the other direction. uh, uh Let's talk a little bit to me about how you see it as a developer of pumped hydro.
3: I think from our point of view, we see that batteries and pumped hydro are more likely to be storage complements rather than storage competitors, especially over the next two decades. I think, you know, if you look and in, and in, in, um, the the technology curve for batteries is, um, is still, we're still seeing improvements. We're still seeing costs come out of that. We think that they certainly are, um, a very important part of the mix but I can also understand from the New South Wales government's perspective that they don't want to leverage themselves to that technology emerging in the time frames that they think they need it and if you look at the scenarios around when coal exits um, you need to be building pumped hydro now uh, if you're going to meet that, that shortage in capacity in the market Um, or long-duration capacity. And, you know, batteries, let's hope they get there. I mean, they're they're a fantastic technology, and, you know, David, it's not a surprise that you're a fan of them. I think we all know from reading your articles and listening that you are, but we see that they can complement each other. Um, And if the government's support through long-term energy supply arrangements will help us get pump storage off the ground, then, you know, they can work together.
1: Hmm. I'm kind of interested because we've seen a lot of pumped hydro projects being proposed over the last couple of years, and I'm thinking particularly South Australia where we actually began this conversation. You know, We've now got, actually got to the point where we've got negative demand in that state now. You couldn't think of a sort of a more obvious place to put storage. They actually have very few batteries. I mean, they've got three. It's a grand total of about 200 megawatts or something like that, 250 megawatt hours. Um, they've been talking about pumped hydro for a few years. Um, there's six projects were put forward. Five of them have fall, fallen by the wayside. I understand that there's one left uh, the Baruta one I think it is Um, uh, it still looks difficult Um, when you as a pumped hydro project developer look at what's happening in South Australia what makes you worry about the future of yours
3: well it's it's a fantastic question I mean I do think that South Australia has had an interesting experience that we can learn from I think one of the things that that is interesting about South Australia is um you know, the, the, the demand in South Australia is not growing. Um, New South Wales, I think, is quite a fundamentally different market. And if you look at when the pump storage was proposed for South Australia, it kind of came off the tail end of coal having already closed. We're at the, we're at a different position in the market now in New South Wales. You know, we've still got um, a very large amount of coal that's coming out in the next probably five to ten years um, and as you, or maybe slightly longer, but as you think about that, um, that's a lot of of um, firm capacity that needs to be replaced. One of the things that pump storage can do is, as we're building out lots of solar and lots of wind, pump storage can add um, uh, synchronous condensing or synchronous inertia to the system. So you know, it's 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 kind of a a dual. Um, benefit to the system. You get long duration storage, but you also get transmission support and system strength. So I think we do look at South Australia and say, how do we make sure we don't end up in the same situation? Um, I think the other thing that that is, is, I know I keep coming back to it, but the New South Wales government support is really focused on trying to get some of these things built. And that level of support, there was some, but the same level of support was not available in in South Australia.
1: how much support do you need? Because if you look at the two pumped hydro projects that are being built, I mean, there's Snowy 2.0 and then there's the um, Kidston one. I mean, both almost entirely funded. Well, in the case of Snowy 2.0, it's entirely funded by the taxpayers. And there's big questions about its sort of economic returns. But, okay, that sort of seems to be going ahead. Kidston um, sounds like a mighty fine project, but it was re- relying very heavily on funding from the North North Australian Infrastructure Facility, if I've got the name of that right, and also the Clean Energy Finance Corporation with some private equity. And um, the
2: Queensland government paying half the transmission cost.
1: Yes, and so how much support do you pumped hydro projects in New South Wales need?
3: Well, I, I, I don't think this, the projects in New South Wales need as much support as as Kidston. Um, I'll come back to Snowy in a second. Um, but if you look at the the level of support the government is looking to provide through the the um, long term energy supply agreements, it's not actually focused on the same at the same level as kidston kidston was an is an unusual project i mean it's fantastic they've got it off the ground but it is a long way away from demand it's kind of you know as, as you pointed out the the distance is enormous but, um, but they, it's a
2: project built by queenslanders for queenslanders and it's in queensland so what what the what what does it matter if it's got issues that it would face mere mortals sorry ben back to you uh,
3: Absolutely agree with you, David. I, could, I couldn't couldn't agree with you more. But what is interesting is, is I think what we are seeing, and um, you know, there's, there's, I'm sure this is um, a controversial view, but I think what we are seeing is that whilst the NEM is, um, there's no suggestion that NEM is pulling apart. I do think that states are going to be much more focused on having their own firming capacity in their own market. Mm-hmm. I think you look at what's happened with COVID, and do you think that our premier is going to be happy to be reliant on Queensland or Victoria to keep the lights on? Mm. You know, I think there's a real there's a real view now that we need to have our own our own firm capacity, our own capability to keep the lights on. Um, you know, the resource sharing is important, um, and interconnectors will play a very important role. But you can see government saying, "I don't want to be reliant on my on my premier next door to, to deliver my energy for me." Mm.
2: No, and in fact, when you look at the futures price, uh, you can see that the New South Wales futures prices for the next couple of years is actually higher than the other states as it continues to be be dependent in part on uh, constrained transmission imports. Uh, uh, And I think that is one of the outcomes of Matt Keane's uh, roadmap is that New South Wales, which has traditionally taken – been a net importer from both Queensland and Victoria – is 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 working towards that not being the case, and therefore, if you're Victorian, Queensland, you have to think about uh, what that means uh, in terms of your own uh, business. But that again, it's not what we're talking about now, is it, Charles?
1: No, 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 no. But it's all, um, it's all, it's all, um, all quite relevant. So New South Wales is actually sort of looking to have two gigawatts of pumped hydro storage, and I guess you know, because there's lots of people out there every time to write about storage, they say, well, how many hours? And I am guess they're looking at a mixture of sort of six, eight, ten, twelve hours. Um, as a developer of one of these projects that hopes to sort of, um, to sort of be contracted to the New South Wales government, is 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 that too much, too little, round about the right, around about the right amount?
3: Um, I think, um, I mean, we, what we have understood from the recoverable grant program that's been running is that the government received uh, 26 applications, uh, might have been 23. There's a huge number of applications, yes, and it was yes. for a very large amount of storage. Um, you know, without being silly about it, some of it is is a pipe dream, mm. um, some of it is real, and some of it is very real. So I think that sort of it's on that spectrum of of where where um, where those projects can sit. Um, the, the, it will sort of depend in a way on how much the renewable energy zones also build. So the, one of the reasons we like the location of our project is that it's right on the edge of the Central West Irana Res, which is supposed to have at least three gigawatts of generation built into it. When you talk to the government and to, to Ener- Energy Co, um, they think that there could effectively be up to six gigawatts built in that location. So is, is there enough storage? Well, no, there's not. Um, you need a demand sink, which Pumped Hydro can provide. Um, you know, I going back to your early comment around South Australia, yeah. um, that's the best thing that we could possibly hope for so we can pump when prices are really low. Um, I think there will need to be more built. Um, and I think that the, um, the mix will be... Um, it will just sort of depend on on how those res, those reses build out, and also on things like hydrogen. Because if we do end up with a very large hydrogen industry in New South Wales, um, that does help from a demand shifting perspective. But it's also electrification, and electrification is good for generators like us. Ben,
2: uh, you know, eight hours duration I think is the minimum re- required under the New South Wales uh, uh, yes, that's storage right. thing, uh, but. Let's. I just want to focus on economics for a minute, uh, and not talking about the cost of the project. But how do you actually envisage this project? Let's say you were merchant uh, and you had to make money. You, would you be selling caps? Would, would you be? Uh, would you be trying to trade the daily balancing market? Uh, uh, would you be wanting to firm wind plants? Would you be wanting to offer
3: ancillary services? I mean, how do you see the revenue stack? So look, I think we'd probably would probably look for a mix. I don't think um, the ancillary stack, the ancillary services really provide enough um, for it to be an imp- a significant part of the the revenue stack. Um, we would sell caps. Um, we'd probably reserve a little bit for ourselves to, um, to be able to play that arb- arbitrage position. Um, one of the things that we have been looking at is we've been out talking to off takers around um, uh, tolling type arrangement, So we have two units, two discrete units sitting in the plant. Um, and, you know, as we think about it, one of the options is, is to run a tolling type uh, agreement or arrangement, um, whether the offtaker brings their own pumping energy and we we sell, the, uh, we just run the plant for them. Um, but I think it's a mix, David. And I think, you know, as one of the things that's always really hard is that the price forecast, you know, you speak to two forecasters or econ- economists and you get four views of what the, the the forward curve looks like so what we're trying to do is to optimize that that doesn't leave us with too much risk um, but does actually allow us to take some of the benefit
1: You'd have to explain the tolling arrangement to me. Is that basically like having almost like a sort of like a capacity contract, um, as we're starting to see with some sort of wind and solar farms, basically, um, and, and they operate that and they just sort of pay for sort of the capacity that's available and not the actual sort of megawatt hours sort of pumped and discharged.
3: So it's, it's it's more like a, if you think about a, um, a tolling agreement on a on a gas fired plant. Um, so you, the the off taker provides the the fuel mm. and then they take the off take and it's dispatches entirely at their control so mm-hmm. what our role in that is to sit and be the the plant operator. we have to make sure it's available, we get paid a fixed fee for making it available, and then we get paid a variable fee for how much energy is generated right. um and we're looking at that model because we think that there's when you look around the market there's quite a few people who have. Um, variable, renewable portfolios but don't have any firming who want to be able to offer to their customers a firm zero um, project, product. Under the um,
2: New and- South Wales oil testers, they have to, in theory, at the moment, unless the New South Wales government changes it, which they should, uh, offer a firm's shape. Uh, and so uh, that has to be achieved one way or another. Let, let's just talk uh, quickly, Ben, about cost and CapEx. I mean, uh, there's... The, Every pumped hydro project is, is different, and that's why I think they'll never get the economies of scale or coming down the learning curve and they, to the extent that uh, other technologies can. But but how do you think your your project stacks up in, in, in cost terms, CAPEX versus others? Uh, uh, you know, I, I see a whole range of numbers out there because so few projects have been built. Yeah. And uh, recently I was talking to guys in the US that were using three million US 3 million, a megawatt, something like that. Uh, uh, how, how are you thinking about your, yours
3: yeah, look it's it's a really good point david because there aren't that many um reference projects that you can look at and say that's what it looks like and i think it would be a mistake to pick up snowy and say what snowy costing per megawatt um i think the um uh you know our our project as as i said right at the beginning these are electrical projects but they're also actually civil projects so they're quite heavily focused on civils um and we think we're at the low end of the of the the capex range. Um, we're currently actually going. We've just finished our reference design. We're out with EPC contractors now um, to get some more certainty around that. Um, it is, in our view, it's less than the number you're talking about. Um, I don't want to give you a specific number of, of what it is on dollars per megawatt. No. This is the
2: analyst um, thing. We start with a high, you know, it's a, it's a matter. You start with a high number and then next I'll talk a low number and you'll tell me that's too low and
3: we'll get, <laughs> it's like
2: auctioning, isn't it,
3: really? <laughs> a little bit. But, um, but I may have been on one or two of your calls before, David, so I know where you're going with it. Um, I think that number feels high, but, um, you know, we've still got a lot to do to prove out. Um, where we are in the cost stack, and there's, there's lots of variables. I mean, it's not helped, of course, by the current supply chain issues, inflationary pressures, um, you know, availability of labour. EPCs are a really interesting thing at the moment. I'm sure you're getting this from other people you talk to as well, but um, you know, there's so many large-scale civil projects going on that getting EPC contractors to compete is, um, is, uh, is difficult. So we have to prove all of that out. Um, and then make sure that there's a market for the project um, that is economic for us and earns us our return
1: just like to go back to the transmission line thing, actually. Um, I'm kind of intrigued about this because um, it, it does seem to be reasonably significant. If you think that can be replicated on a large scale and a longer thing, um, then that might actually seem to be like a real alternative. I mean, quite, you, you talked about the offsets, and I think the, I think the offsets for the HumeLink project in the Snowy Mountains were close to a billion dollars or something like that. So um, I'm just wondering just how replicable that sort of approach could be for a longer transmission line.
3: Well, we're really hoping it is. Um, If you actually have a look at ATCO outside of Australia, um, we've we've got quite a significant position in transmission. Um, We're actually rebuilding the entire Puerto Rican uh, transmission and distribution system as we speak. So um, that was obviously affected very badly by cyclones and hurricanes, and um, we're rebuilding it. We've done the Fort McMurray project in Canada, um, which was a contestable process. Um, we think that we have a competitive advantage in transmission, we think we can be innovative um, and we do like the idea of being able to show these capabilities um, and then seeing if we can replicate it, because it's got to be an interesting option for the, for the market. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and in terms of cost, it is very cost effective relative to an overhead cable of similar size.
1: So a little bit more expensive to build, but cheaper to operate? Well,
3: um actually, it's a little bit cheaper to um, to build as well.
1: Oh, oh okay, but
3: um, particularly because of the offsets. So on an ongoing basis, you've got onsets and then you've also uh, offsets and on um, upfront basis in terms of land acquisition and those types of things. So we think it's very competitive on both. Hmm.
1: That's interesting. Okay. Cool. And then just maybe a final question before we go into the other news of the week and and, and things. Um, how long does a project like this take to build?
3: Uh, well um, the actual constructions about two and a half to three years mm-hmm. um, because we're not doing lots of underground that makes it a bit easier because mm-hmm. we're putting pen stocks above ground um, uh, so <laughs> it's kind of ironic isn't it transmissions going underground but pen stocks are above ground um, uh, so the, the the constructions probably two to two and a half to three years um, the the um, from now until FID is probably 12 to to 15 months, depending on quite a lot. Actually, depends on the New South Wales government's um, timeframes around recoverable grants and Altessa. Okay. Right.
2: So, uh, can you remind me? You've got the environmental, uh, all the geotechnical and environmental stuff uh, done, signed off on, etc.
3: No, we've got we've done the geotech, um, so we know what land we're dealing with. Um, we've now put in the scope and study for the project. And so that will start in the, um, it starts immediately and then we'll move into the EIS in the next few months.
2: I think that's still an ambitious timetable to get all it that is. done. It, it, uh, that, it that, is that's... an
3: ambitious timetable, but I'll go back to your um, to your comment, David. Fortune favours the brave.
1: It does indeed. <laughs> Very good. Um, well, actually, speaking about storage, we um, had uh, the uh, Victorian big battery, which is the biggest in Australia, has just got to registered for FCAS services. Um, I guess the battery storage facilities is one reason why pumped hydro might sort of struggle to compete in, in, in those sort of markets. Um, would, would that be right, um, Ben?
3: Oh, look, I, I, I don't know enough, to be honest, about the Victorian market. I haven't looked in enough detail just yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I think pump I mean, Victoria's also got this other issue of the Marinus link, which is kind of, uh, it's it's the snowy of Victoria in a way, isn't it? Um, I saw the article today up on Renew Economy about the um, about whether it makes sense or not. Um, yes. And, you know, you look at BassLink 1 and that's also a fascinating story that's unfolding. Um, the battery, my understanding of the battery in, in Victoria was it was there to help ensure that the interconnector would be... Able to operate at capacity all the time.
1: Well, yeah, well, um, that's one of its that's one of its um, attributes, but that's probably yeah. you know, less than you know half, or probably even a third of its actual capacity. So yes, that's you'll right. Be playing in the market, doing a lot of different things. Oh. Yeah, you would hope
3: so. Yeah, um, but yeah. it won't solve for, it won't solve, solve for you know eight hour duration. It'll solve for. Probably
2: four. Well, that's that's the question I have. You know, do you when do you need eight hours uh, as opposed to when you need four hours? Obviously, you, you don't need uh, eight hours over every day because uh, you know uh, uh, you, if you, you've got a charge for nine hours or ten hours and discharge for eight, it doesn't leave a lot of, uh, of other hours. Uh, that's so. You know, it's this marginal value of the of the of the last four hours that actually interests me but i don't think we're going to get the
1: answer
3: to it on this on this call no I, I don't think we will it's a very very long conversation i think david
1: good stuff um david is there anything else that you want to touch on before we wrap up for today uh no just to note that i think the uh
2: the prices looking forward futures market is relatively steady uh we seem to be hanging around 50 51 terawatt hours annualized across the nem of wind and solar uh we've probably passed the peak wind period now but and the, even the solar period you know grows grows up until about christmas and then starts to fall off so i think uh, myself uh That's what we're looking... They're the main things I'm thinking about in terms of the short-term action and what kind of a summer it will be. Will it be like last summer, like March quarter, you know, where absolutely nothing happened? uh, Or will it be like the year before, which was full of drama? So that's about as far as I've got to at the moment. Wow. Yeah.
1: Well, I think I think with the La Nina uh, forecast, it's probably gonna be like last summer rather than the summer beforehand, which would be very disappointing for some of the storage people depending on increased volatility um in the market. But um just, just finally, David, um Shell's purchase of PowerShop. I mean, any observations on that? It's a um they've already bought ERM. I mean, they've got this sort of grand um ambition to be a major player, if not the major player in the electricity market. Um, as Ben mentioned, you know, there's there's Telstra. Um, last week um, was unveiling its plans. Um, you've got even people like BP and Ampol apparently looking at it. Um, what does this well, mean? Well, I think myself, I've, I've thought for a long time there's room for a
2: major, and I really mean someone of the size of AGL or Origin or Energy Australia, to say uh, we're going entirely green 60 or 70 percent of people want to do more about climate change we're going to make it really easy for them by ditching everything to do with coal and gas and guaranteeing that as a major retailer we're going to sell green energy and we're going to promote it now none of the big gen tailors actually do that because they've all got coal and or gas assets that they've been trying to protect for the last 10 or 15 years desperately they now see the writings on the wall but they can't uh, almost like anthony albanese they can't move from you know being uh, critics and holding things back to putting their own position forward and and, and leading from the front uh, so there's a lot of scope for that now power shops pissed off if i just uh, customers are slightly pissed off because it's no longer going to have quite the level of green credentials but if i'm shell i'm also worried that i've got to integrate uh, something that's been very focused on the commercial and large industrial market and very successful. They've been by far the most successful at that in terms of dollars per megawatt hour and capturing volume to now having to integrate a small, uh, you know, and it is a small couple hundred thousand retail customers and make all that work. So there's issues on both sides. I'm not sure it's a perfect marriage.
1: Mm. Ben maybe one final question for you, um, we heard this last week as well that the Australian Energy Market Commission has put off sort of discussion about sort of various forms of capacity market, I think it was like an operating reserve which has been proposed by the likes of um, Iberdrola, um, there's obviously still discussions on some form of capacity market, hopefully it won't look like what was dubbed coal keeper, um, they insist it won't, what do you hope for as a you know, developer of a pumped hydro project? Are you sort of resigned to the fact that it's going to be basically state-based policies? And, and how helpful would it be to have a unified and decent federal policy?
3: Well, I think the, you know, the economic reality is that coal's leaving. So you know, coal will be out of the market and um, we need to replace it with something. Um, yeah. You know whether it's for whether it's batteries or or pumped hydro as we've talked about before, um, the the environment in New South Wales is pretty strong. Um, we're happy with that, um, but we support any regulatory reform that brings closer the mix of resources we're going to need in the future. Mm-hmm. So um, if capacity if a capacity regime works to do that, great. If it doesn't work to do that, well, let's let's try and make sure that we. Um, Position ourselves to um, to deliver our project through what the New South Wales government's um, proposing. Mm. Um, You know, our view is that um, waiting for the perfect economic, so the perfect regulatory environment, um, probably will erode returns for people like us. Mm. So we're we're keen to see some certainty, but we're also happy to keep moving based on what we're seeing today.
1: Okay, well, look, I think that's a bit of a wrap for today. Um, thank you very much, Ben, for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Um,
3: thank you for having me.
1: Uh, it's a pleasure. Um, thank you, David, uh, once again. Um, thanks to all uh, listen, everyone out there listening to this podcast. We'll be back again next week. Thanks finally to our sponsors, um, Evergen and Pylon. Um, and that's a wrap for today, and bye for now.
0: Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant. Generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole, Evergen software is powering the energy system of the future.